Welcome to The Indicator, a weekly collaboration between KGNU Community Radio and the award-winning reporters at the Colorado Independent. I'm Maeve Conran at KGNU. Susan Green, editor at the Colorado Independent, is our guest today. And Susan, this is The Indicator episode that happens after the elections. Thus far, we've been taking a look ahead of the midterms. Well, the elections have happened and we have a new governor and we have a blue wave across Colorado. What's your sense now of next steps? Because Jared Polis has gotten a huge amount of national attention. He's the first openly gay man to be elected as governor. He's the first Jewish governor in the state of Colorado. And uh, and are you surprised at all by the election result with Jared Polis now? Not at all. Uh, not, not at all. I think uh, he ran a terrific campaign. I think we saw what I... Um, have described on TV as a flaccid campaign from by Walker Stapleton. It was remarkable in its um, lack of energy. And I think Jared played all the cards right. What, what um, I'm struck by, and I was struck by throughout the campaign season, is that before, uh, w- when he actually won the primary in June, there was a lot of talk, I think, um, and it would be phrased like this, but but can he win statewide, which I thought always was a euphemism for can a gay man, can a Jewish man, can a gay Jewish man win statewide in Colorado? Um, and I heard that even from Democrats. And what we really saw in, in his throughout his campaign was that both of those things were completely non-issues and um, uh, you know, as much as he was attacked as being a bolder liberal by by Walker Stapleton and by the right, I think uh, for the most part that was a fantastic and albeit obviously very expensive personally for him, which he can totally afford, campaign. Well, it was quite a night, I know, where the Democrats were celebrating on Tuesday night. And I spoke to your colleague, Corey Hutchins, and and also Mike Litwin as well. This was a huge night for Democrats because not only did Jared Polis win uh, the governor's race, but we have Democrats across the board, the attorney general, secretary of state, state treasurer. And then the Democrats also taking control of the state Senate and further entrenching their control at the state house. This surely was a night that the Democrats were celebrating. Yes, total sweep statewide. Um, interesting that uh, that happened. You you immediately heard Governor John Hickenlooper, um, who has been criticized, um, a Democrat who has been criticized as not a Democrat and who is uh, very very closely watching um, and seemingly actively uh, running for um, president as a moderate, warning all the Democrats, don't act too much like a Democrat or Democrats. Um, it'll bite you in the face in, in, in two years from now. And this morning, um, and forgive me if I'm wrong about this, I think it was John Morse, the former uh, state senator, um, on the radio, my, my kids were talking while, while he was speaking, but he, I think, uh, on CPR said very strongly to his fellow Democrats, please, please, this time act like Democrats. What exactly does that mean? I think it means um, that Colorado um, 
because we have been known to be a swing state, because we have so many independents, um, because two Democrats were um, essentially ousted um, from the, the legislature last time the Democrats had control of it um, for passing gun control measures, are loath to, uh, let's say, um, be as progressive or as liberal as maybe their counterparts in other states, certainly in California and back east, um, and that they're very careful um, about looking too liberal. And certainly that is a... Um, an identity that that John Hickenlooper has taken a lot of care to avoid. It's an identity that uh, our senator, Michael Bennett, our Democratic U.S. senator, has taken care to avoid. Um, before him, Ken Salazar has, took care to avoid. So we have this sort of long history of very moderate Democrats who are careful not to look too progressive. And I, I found it interesting how immediate uh, that message was, that warning from the governor, you know, don't, uh, don't be Democrats. Well, you could argue that many of the Democrats who won, many who unseated Republicans at the state senator and the state house, ran on pretty progressive platforms. And so it does seem that voters here have an appetite for that. I mean, Polis himself was running on pretty progressive platform like free all day kindergarten for all children in Colorado, expanding health care for everybody. These aren't necessarily moderate issues. They were taking quite progressive stances on this. And it seems that voters want that. That's true. I think there's a difference between the state house, um, the the state lawmakers running in their individual districts, um, some of whom, you know, it's very easy to take those positions because they have very blue districts, right? And I, I agree with you on on many of Polis's platforms, but you also saw, um, especially during the, um, after the primary when he had the Democratic nomination, you know, he took um, care not to um, support the statewide transportation measure, not to support these sort of tax and spend measures that would um, run the risk of having him appear too much like a tax and spend liberal. Um, yes, he stayed true to those core programs that you just mentioned, but, you know, he was not out there really talking uh, about limiting and regulating fracking in the oil and gas industry as he had before. I mean, his his talking points and his messaging throughout um the general election piece of, of his campaign um, was all pretty moderate. And, and in fact, in an interview with the Denver Post today, he didn't move really from his position, still reiterating that he had always been opposed to Prop 112. That was the uh, increased setbacks that failed, that voters rejected here in Colorado. A lot of people thought, well, OK, if Polis actually wins, he might change his tune on oil and gas regulation. And arguably, he has a very different relationship to the industry than John Hickenlooper, former oil and gas geologist, uh, has with the industry. It, it's still very early days yet. So I suppose all of that could change. Right. You know, we hear so much about how much money the industry put into opposing 112, but not um, nearly as much as about how much the industry put into opposing him. Um, and again, that, that money was neutralized and it was significant amount of money. I don't have it offhand, but um, 
It was a significant amount of money. It was neutralized, of course, by um, the what I think will be $30 million of his own cash that he put in to uh, become governor. And I guess when we're going back to that sort of what surprised you question, um, there really for that amount of self-funding for a candidate in the state, which just vastly surpasses anything we've seen in the past, I don't think we've seen, we saw that much conversation about it, um, about how much of his own money he put in into this race and um, what that means. A lot of people felt that the midterm elections, well, indeed nationally, but certainly here in Colorado, it was a referendum on Donald Trump and we could see that playing out in many of the races, particularly the 6th con- Congressional District race where Mike Kaufman, who has fended off Democratic challengers in two previous elections, two incredibly capable, prominent Democrats, Morgan Carroll and Andrew Romanoff, to be beaten by Jason Crow in this election. And a lot of people say this was the Donald Trump effect. And we could maybe even look at some of the state house races where conservative Republicans lost their seats as well, and many often losing to women. And one seat in particular was um, Senator Tim Neville, and that was in Senate District 16, losing to Tammy Story. This really was women as well, a big part of the narrative here in the Colorado elections. Yeah, I mean, I think the answer to that question, how big the Trump factor was, really depends um, by race. You just mentioned the Tammy Story election. You know, I, I I don't really know Tammy's story. I did watch her, her campaign. You know, it was by no means a super uh, vivacious, inspiring campaign. She was as careful, if not more careful, to say really anything of substance than I've seen um, in any candidate maybe in my entire career. Um, and some people have said, you know, a uh, 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 Mannequin could have uh, run in a similar race. It was really that um, careful, let's put it that way. So in, in that race, I think that certainly was a combination of Trump and also, you know, Neville being um, the gun guy that Neville is, I think, you know, and, and we we're talking today when we had, uh, you know, the news this morning out of, um, I think, Thousand Oaks in California. I think people are just... There has been some sort of tipping point with these mass shootings, and we've had so many in the in the recent weeks. And, you know, Tim Neville's big gun message, and that is his big message, guns, guns, probably doesn't resonate anywhere um, in his district, in this state, or in this country at this point. Well, a lot of the gun control advocacy groups, Every Town USA, Moms Demand Action, are really applauding uh, Colorado voters for having voted in several gun control activists, one of the most prominent being Tom Sullivan, who was successful in House District 37, which is a largely conservative district. Certainly, Republicans have held that House District in in Arapahoe County, unseating the Republican incumbent, which is also an extra barrier. And Tom, of course, is the father of Alex Sullivan, who is one of those who was murdered in the Aurora Theatre shooting. So, We saw uh, a case a few years ago where elected uh, state legislators were ousted because of their votes for gun control. But now we have a new slew of state legislators who really had gun control as a central part of their platform. Yeah, I don't think it's um, anything to be ashamed of anymore to be 
a Democrat, and really for that matter, a Republican for some sensible gun control measures, magazine limits, things like that. I mean, background checks. Um, I don't think anyone's talking about any super radical gun uh, control measure that's beyond just these basic common sense red flag laws um, that had real trouble passing. Um, I think we live in a time when people, um, if they're showing signs of mental health stress, of crisis, um, that there certainly is a legitimate conversation to have about whether they should have access to their guns. Well, one of the big stories, of course, of the election is the amount of unaffiliated voters, the independents who came out stronger than registered Democrats and Republicans in this uh, last election. And many people are saying it's the independent state now that Colorado, we're not looking at blue or red. We're looking at an independent state. And of course, recent election law changes to allow unaffiliated to uh, participate in primaries. I, I think that has driven so much of this. But this really has become a narrative about the independent voter here in Colorado. It has. And as a news person, and as a news organization, we've loved this because what we have and we can see from our analytics and our readership are people um, who really have not been partisan, right, who are not knee jerk one way or another, taking the time to read up on these candidates, to read up on these issues. I mean, our readership on those 13 statewide ballot issues was off the charts. It nearly broke our server. We had a bit of a crisis on Monday when people were at the very last minute filling out their ballots. And so um, we have reason to believe that a lot of those folks were independents. They're doing their homework. They're um, uh, learning about um, the issues before them. And I, I think we were actually really lucky in some ways as a state. You know, two years ago, we had this thing called Raise the Bar, which made it much more difficult um, in our state to, to have to float ballot measures. It made it much more expensive and sort of cumbersome, the process, to do it. And I think there were a lot of pundits who, pundits who thought that was the end of what we call direct democracy in Colorado, these, these ballot measures, which have made us, you know, made us the first state to legalize pot, et cetera. Um, what we have seen in the past two years and what we saw with these 13 measures is, you know, yes, it was more difficult to qualify them for the ballot, but they did qualify for the ballot. And we saw this really interesting array of issues about, you know, whether slavery needs to be really out of the language of our Constitution, for example. Um, the issue of payday lending, obviously the transportation and the school funding issue, the fracking issue, the um, campaign spending issue. I, I, I think what we saw here, and, and it's kind of refreshing because so many people are so sick of the toxicity of partisan politics right now is, you know, for the most part, people probably decided months ago um, who they were going to vote for, for, for governor and maybe those other races. But um, I think also independents and, and all voters in the state were really um, galvanized by some of these issues. Certainly um, uh, 112 was a, a, a something that really uh, elicited a lot of strong feelings one way or another um, in the state. And there were political conversations going on that were beyond blue versus red conversations. And I think that's so healthy for our democracy and our state. So 
I loved it. And um, I think, you know, there's not always really great news um, in politics. And, and I'm not talking about the outcome of the election. I'm just talking about participation and conversation. And uh, we had a lot of that. In fact, we had this neat thing in our in our newsroom. We invited about um, a dozen young people, middle schoolers and high schoolers, to help us with the election returns, literally uploading them. And as they were doing it, these kids were talking about all these ballot issues. And, you know, some of them were actually, many of them knew about them, of course, before they, they got there on Tuesday night. But the conversations among them, and these kids are not necessarily party allied one way or another, were fantastic in a sort of little like microcosm of the conversations more broadly that were going on in Colorado. Well, we'll talk about the youth vote in, in just a minute, albeit some of the folks helping you on election night were even too young to vote. But I know the youth vote was a big deal as well. Yeah. But I want to let listeners know that we're speaking with Susan Green of the Colorado Independent on the indicator on uh, as we review the uh, 2018 elections. And, you know, speaking there about the independent voters and the emergence of this, essentially the largest block of voters now in Colorado are independent, unaffiliated voters. How do you think that's going to change the landscape of politics going forward? For for the two major political parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, who very often have just relied on registered members of the party to vote the party line down the ticket in elections. This surely changes everything for how parties are going to approach elections. It does. And I think we saw it change very clearly during the primary um, race, especially in governor earlier this year. I mean, we had, and again, we can see this from the voter turnout, but we also could see it from our readership, is that many, many more people were paying attention. So the ability to not be affiliated with a um, with a party, but be able to chime in um, in the primary to shape who is actually going to be um, on the ticket in November is, um, I think, a galvanizing force for, for voters in this state and, and a positive thing for voters in the state. In some ways, I also think... Um, it makes the parties and the party machines less relevant, which I'm sure the parties aren't that happy about. But I think lots of people, normal, regular people and um, voters are pretty happy about that. And it maybe returns the conversation a little bit more to the issues than to um, party allegiances and back scratching. Well, the youth vote, as we mentioned, the millennials often get a hard, uh, well, they have a, a bad reputation for not showing up at the polls. But it seemed to be, and I, I don't have all the uh, statistics in front of me, there did seem to be a big turnout of young voters. I know there was a big turnout to get young people registered to vote ahead of the election. Absolutely. Um, and it's not the first cycle that we've seen this. I mean, there have been very concerted very well-organized efforts to get college students um, voting, to get, uh, let's say, high school seniors voting. Um, you know, I, I will say to some degree, and I'll admit this, I live in a bit of a bubble, but in the bubble I live in, um, and the office building where I work, and the dailiness of my life, I saw young people all over the place, um, out there door knocking, standing on sidewalks, making phone calls, um, you know, waving signs, um, getting out the vote, literally doing things to raise money for candidates and for issue campaigns. Um, I see that more and more every election cycle. I think a lot of that is prodded by um, 
two things. One is climate change. I, I think um, young people very much feel like they've been left with a really existentially scary, difficult problem that nobody is addressing quickly enough. Um, there's an urgency in the youth vote that is very palpable when you speak to young people. I think um, the same thing around certain civil rights, around immigration, around LGBTQ issues. Um, these folks are coming up in a very different era where um, the, the older generations just don't see things like they do. So when they see, um, and this is true in Colorado, but elsewhere as well, things like conversion therapy, you know, coming up in our, our state legislature or um, issues about even, you know, who's using what bathroom. It just, it's so anathema to them and so offensive to them that I think even um, some issues that, that may be sort of smaller in, in that they affect a smaller portion of, of um, the population um, are really galvanizing to them. But back to the to the climate change thing. I mean, I, I just, they're scared and they pay attention to things like water and they're paying attention to things like energy policy and sustainability in a way that certainly my generation, your generation, our parents' generation have not. And I, I, I feel that um, that in this election, but but, you know, probably certainly more in elections to come will be a very defining factor in terms of, and I'm not talking about party participation, I'm just talking about young people participating, inheriting this planet and the state and making sure that policies are put in place to, to preserve this state and to preserve the air that we're breathing. Well, in the last few minutes that we have, Susan, we'll just touch on some of the ballot measures that were successful, that some that weren't successful, and really what that means maybe for the 2019 state legislative session. Because some ballot measures ended up in the ballot because of the failure of the state legislature to actually tackle issues like funding of education, funding of transportation, both competing uh, transportation funding measures, 109 and 110, both of them failed. The education taxation measure to uh, increase tax on the state's highest earners to fund education, that failed. So are we going to see some of these issues? Well, the state has to deal with them. Yeah. So it's, it may be now that uh, the Democrats have control of the state House and state Senate. Something might change that, you know, something might happen in 2019 that wasn't able to happen in the previous sessions. Right. I mean, there. the truth is there are a lot of competing needs um, that are unfunded in the state. There are issues that... Uh, Governor John Hickenlooper has uh, left ha, has left unresolved and unfunded, and he leaves now to Jared Polis to deal with. So, when Jared campaigned on free kindergarten statewide, um, some criticisms of that were that he was not that specific about how he would fund it. But <clears throat> he also simultaneously needs to address um, these sort of more broad questions about inequities in funding education um, and school districts statewide. So there will be, you know, regardless of, um, yes, the, the Democrats took control of the entire legislature and of the governor's mansion, but that doesn't mean that there will not be very um, controversial conversations about uh, 
you know, what are we going to fund first? And, and do we even have the money to do that? Does kindergarten get funded or do some of the inequities that that measure that failed um, sought to equalize, do they get addressed? Um, transportation, certainly, I mean, we see over and over again, state voters are not happy with these sort of tax and spend um, uh, initiatives. We also have something else looming, as you know, because you've covered it, water. Um, there will be a big push in the 2019 session for uh, funding to carry out Governor Hickenlooper's water plan, which in many ways um, is a sort of unfunded, I wouldn't say mandate because it doesn't have that much teeth, but we all know we are facing a very um, major water crisis and water shortfall if we don't address it, and the state has really no funding mechanism in place to pay for it. So. This will affect the conversation in the 2019 session. Um, these needs, as well as things like rural broadband, um, workforce uh, education, these just wide swaths of, of issues that are not funded, there will be a lot of competition for the limited amount of funding we have in a state that continues to be bound by Tabor and the Gallagher Amendment, and a governor um, who will have to show some leadership that his predecessor did not in um, making some priority decisions about which of these needs gets funded first. Well, of course, Tabor is always the elephant in the room when you talk about anything to be funded here in Colorado. Given there is so much democratic control now in the state, do you think that in and of itself will be tackled? I, I sure hope so. Um, you know, we heard a lot from Governor Hickenlooper about what a um, Gordian knot, a, a term he liked to use, and um, what, what a sort of how much it hindered and hampered our ability to get what we need to get done as a state. Get, and I'm not just talking about Tabor, but Gallagher as well. But for all that lip service, really not much was done um, to undo it other than um, the hospital provider fee a couple sessions ago that really nearly almost didn't happen. And some would say he didn't do nearly enough to um, make happen. Um, but that was a bipartisan agreement um, that regardless of the fact that, you know, the, the Democrats have controlled, um, now have control of a trifecta in, in the state, um, they're also going to have to get Republicans to agree on as well because a lot of these fixes are not really up to the legislature. They're going to be up to state voters. That's the state we live in. And to undo some of the um, problems they're going to, to, to need undoing, um, especially with Tabor, will require really... Much more education, I think, in the state about how much our hands are tied and how much that's affecting programs throughout the state. Well, people can read the Colorado Independent's extensive coverage on all of these election issues and uh, their post-election analysis that continues. It's all online at coloradoindependent.com. Susan Green with The Indy, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, as always, Maeve. Be well. The Indicator is a collaboration between KGNU and the Colorado Independent. Once again, you can catch all of their reporting at coloradoindependent.com. For KGNU, I'm Maeve Conran.